You may be seated. We'll continue to worship together in prayer. I'll lead out, and there'll be moments where there'll be pauses and opportunities for you to add your prayers to mine. So please bow with me. God, we yield to you. You are good. Your ways are good. We trust that you are doing a good work in our lives and in our world. Even amidst the times that we feel this world crushing in on us, you are doing something good in our lives. We believe it. We surrender to you. We invite you to break new ground in our hearts. Soften us to your ways. We long to be your offering in this world. We want to be vessels of your love and grace and forgiveness. We yield to you, God. So together, we take a moment to pause and open ourselves up fully to you and to listen for your voice. Together we say, Lord, hear our prayer. God, we feel the aches of our world. Our world is so tired. Our frontline workers are worn out. Our government officials are tired of delivering bad news. Our world is tired of the persistence of racism. Our family and friends are tired of the illnesses that plague them tired of the financial burdens that haunt them. Jesus, we pray for our tired world. We remember your invitation when you declared, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, I will give you rest. So together we pause and we pray for our tired world. Together, Lord, hear our prayer. God, we acknowledge there is tension among us. We feel the tug and strain on our hearts, on our families, our community, and our public discourse. God, as we lean into the tension as your people, would you help us to grow and stretch together? Help us to become flexible and nimble Expand our ability to listen, to be generous, to be gentle with one another, 
God, we take a moment to acknowledge the places in our lives where we feel the tension. And as we do, would you start to fill our minds with imagination for the ways tension can help us grow stronger together. Together. Lord, hear our prayer. God, we love you. Your love compels us to keep working for good in our world. We want to become people who are growing more and more in the ways of love. Help us, Lord. Help us to see the world through your eyes. Help us to look out to the world, not with disdain or with anger or frustration, but with love. Draw our attention to the places where love is most needed. Energize us with your love. Help us to become people who see chaos and crisis and division as opportunities. Opportunities to extend love to new places in our world. We want to carry your love with us wherever we go. So help us, Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. I've just got a few announcements before we continue on. And Allison comes and delivers us the first message in this new teaching series. So along with this teaching series, we are offering a series of spiritual formation classes to accompany. So Jared Siebert is going to be facilitating these sessions called Embracing the Tension, where we will learn to see disagreement as an opportunity for spiritual formation. So these classes are happening starting this Tuesday night, and they're going to be happening over the next three weeks. And you can join in in person here at Lakeview, or you can also participate online via Zoom. These classes are designed for full engagement, whether you're in the room or you're joining online. And so you can register at lakeviewchurch.com. And please, we invite you to come join us this Tuesday night. And then throughout the month of January, we are highlighting several volunteer opportunities in our church. Serving at Lakeview is, is not an obligation or a duty, but it is rather an opportunity to participate more fully in the life of our church. Volunteering allows you to become a part of a team and it allows you to use your strengths to make a difference in the lives of other people. So yeah, we, we need volunteers in order to keep everything we do running, but trust me, we invite you for your sake to find a place to get involved if you're not already serving here in our church. So today we're highlighting our need for new home church leaders. Now, leading a home church is a significant responsibility. So if you're new to our church, don't worry. There are many other ways to get involved. But if you have been around Lakeview for a while, if you've been following Jesus for a while, uh, this is a significant opportunity that you can play in the life of our church. 
And obviously the current state of the pandemic is making things very challenging for home church right now, but we want to keep the conversation going and we hope that in the weeks and months ahead, we will be able to get several new home churches started because people are reaching out to us saying they would like to become a part of a community. And so we just need some new people to step up. So if that in any way interests you, we can at least just start the conversation. Email serve at lakeviewchurch.com and we can talk a little bit more. If you are new to our church and our community, you'd like to get more involved, lakeviewchurch.com slash connect is a place you can go. There's a form you can fill out and also a list of a few opportunities for ways you can join in. So we invite you to do that. And then we also invite you to continue giving to Lakeview if you consider this to be your home. We thank you for your ongoing generosity for those of you who continue to give sacrificially. We especially say thanks to those of you who gave very generously throughout December. I will be giving an update next weekend Just a little teaser, there's good news. So I'm looking forward to bringing that next Sunday. For now, why don't we take a moment, stand up, and as you're comfortable, maybe we'll do waves and and greetings from a distance today, but we invite you still to say hi uh, to those around you, and Allison's gonna come and bring us the message. Good morning. Good morning, I was waiting for Doug. You always have a loud good morning for me. Thank you. Welcome this morning. It's cold out, things have changed with COVID, and it's good to see all of you here. Thanks for coming. Uh, We're starting our new series today, and with a new series comes new resources. Um, So here are our resources for this series. Alana has the first two in the bookstore. First one is Nonviolent Communication. That is not a faith-based book, but it has lots of really practical ideas for how to, like, Uh, just reflect on our own posture toward the world and then engage difficult conversations. The second one, A More Christ-Like Way by Brad Jerzak, he's going to actually be one of our guest speakers this month, is like just super on point for this series because it's all about how to follow Jesus um, no matter the situation or circumstances that we find ourselves in as a church. Um, And the third one by David Fitch, The Church of Us Versus Them, is not available in the bookstore, but you can find it online. And it's a great resource for learning how to like move beyond binary theology and maybe rethink some of the things that we've kind of classified people by. Uh, Things like how we read the Bible, conversion, politics, all in new and life-giving ways. So those are our three chosen resources for this series. So just check them out re-engage. We're really encouraging people through this series to take some time on their own to engage this topic. And so one of the ways that you can do that is by reading one of these books. So let's jump in. Welcome to our new series, Reclaim, Following Jesus in an Increasingly Polarized World. Now, if you've been around Lakeview for a while, you'll know that In the month of January, for the last four years, we've used this month to explore current issues that invite us into hard spaces and challenge us as a community. We've talked about reconciliation with our indigenous neighbors, caring for the earth, and nonviolence and peacemaking last year. And this week, we're going to talk or this uh, year, we're gonna talk about polarization. And in keeping with tradition, we're gonna invite guest speakers to come and share with us um, after I kick us off this weekend. So next week, Lord willing, John Hand will be here from the Jesus Collective to share a little bit more about what it means to be a Jesus-centered community. 
The week after, Brad Jerzak is going to join us via a Zoom interview to talk to us about the politics of Jesus. And then on our last week, Cynthia Wallace, who you might remember from last year, is going to join us. She's a prophet at the U of S and talk about some of the very practical ways that we can follow Jesus in a polarized world. Now, the reason that we do this is that we believe that the church is actually called to engage issues of justice and reconciliation, and that where there is tension, that's often where the Spirit of God is at work, bringing something new. We're called, as the church, to join the Spirit in these places. Tension isn't something that we need to avoid. It actually is one of the tools of the Spirit to uh, transform and change us as individuals, as a church community, and as a world. And I want to name that this topic is a little bit different than previous topics because uh, the other topics that we've explored in January, um, most of us have sort of had the privilege of being a little bit arm's length from them. We could like come and listen on Sunday and then maybe go home and withdraw a little bit and think about them. Um, But this year, none of us are distant. Polarization is like the water that we're swimming in, isn't it? No matter who you are or what your opinions are on everything that's going on, you are living in tension. And if you haven't experienced it in your own family, in your own household, you're really fortunate. If you haven't experienced it there, you're navigating it at work or in friendships or in your larger family. And I just want to acknowledge that it is wrenching. It is really hard. It's hard to hear one another. It's hard to listen. It's hard to understand one another right now. And if we thought church was the place where we would be able to retreat and find like-minded people and maybe a little peace from the tension, well, that's just not the case, is it? In fact, sometimes it feels like church is the place where this is amped up. Um, And if you had hoped that church would be the place where you could escape, I get you. I kind of feel that way sometimes, too. I wish that we could just find all kinds of like-minded people. If you were all the same as me, this would be a much easier thing to do, you guys. But unfortunately, or fortunately, we are invited to bring our whole selves into this community. Our thoughts our feelings, our experiences, our opinions. And if all of us bring our whole selves into this community, there is going to be tension because we're all different. So tension, polarization, differences, even conflict, I just want to tell you, have existed in the church as long as the church has existed. This is not new. In fact, most of the New Testament was written because of tension. The letters in the New Testament are almost always occasioned by problems, by struggles, and by differences. They are written to churches in the midst of tension. In fact, two of the largest letters in the New Testament, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, are a result of a major, major conflict. Here's uh, the story in a short version. So Paul starts the church in Corinth. We find the story of that in Acts 18. And after he leaves, he leaves and he goes and plants churches in the Roman Empire and other places, he hears that there are major problems at the church in Corinth. There's factions, there's infighting, 
There's sexual sin, there's wrongdoing, and it is a huge, huge mess. So Paul writes the first letter to the Corinthians in order to address all of these issues, and the Corinthians do not respond. They don't respond well, so Paul follows up with a visit, and the visit goes so poorly that he has to cut his visit short and kind of retreat. It goes really, really badly. So then he writes another letter, a letter that isn't in our Bible, kind of pleading for reconciliation, pleading for the church to listen to him, and a shift happens in the relationship. The Corinthians start to deal with some of their issues, and reconciliation starts to happen. And 2 Corinthians is written to the church in Corinth after this happens, and Paul's like defending his leadership, and he's also patching up this relationship that he has with the Corinthian church. And Dr. Cameron Lee calls 1 and 2 Corinthians a case study in congregational conflict. We know that, don't we? We've been there. Tension has been a part of the reality of the church since day one. The first century church was messy. It brought together people of different nationalities and cultures and religions. It brought together different ways of thinking and approaching the world and behaving in the world. And then what was asked of these people was that they would build a common life together, that they would live in community. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination for us to just sense how much tension this could have caused just from this hodgepodge of people and ideas and convictions, it would have been really hard work to build and maintain community. The experience of tension, of difference, and of conflict are not always reasons to feel discouraged because putting together people who think differently, who act differently, who have a hard time understanding one another, this is what the church does. It's what the church has been doing since its inception. And tension can actually be an indication that we are doing the hard work of building a common life, building life together, of learning how to live our faith. Tension has the potential to form us into the people that God is calling us to be, engaging differences of opinion, leaning into relationships that are difficult for us, sticking around when it's hard is one of the ways that God forms and transforms us. And so with that in mind, we are asking you this month to lean in, to try to stay open to the ways that tensions in our community might be propelling us into something new. We ask that you keep your eyes and your ears open, your heart soft, your mind open to other ideas, to other opinions. But in order to prepare for this, I want to talk about some fundamentals that we're going to hang on to as we enter into this month. It doesn't matter what you believe about any of the stuff that's going on. These fundamentals are for us as Christians, as people who follow Jesus. These fundamentals determine our posture as we have these conversations. They are for all of us. And so if you're tempted to think about someone else who should be here and hear these fundamentals, or if you're thinking that person really should like engage that fundamental, I want to just invite you to ever so gently bring your reflections back to yourself, 
and think about your own heart and mind. And if, you know, like you didn't have to write the sermon and think about it all week, so you just have to hear it one time. So just imagine the work that the Spirit is doing in my heart as I've had to work through all of these things. Also, these are not my fundamentals. These are Paul's. So if you have an issue with them, you can take them up with Paul. From 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 19. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we don't do that any longer. So therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us that message of reconciliation. And so here is our first fundamental. Love will compel and constrain us. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Christ's love will compel and constrain us. So in this version, NIV, of the scriptures, the translator uses the word compels. This love will compel us. The word compel kind of brings to mind energy or force behind an action, right? So if I said I had a compulsion, you would recognize that it's kind of a force beyond me or beyond my control that causes me to take action. So when we talk about a compulsion, we might talk about like how I need to continually wash my hands or I need to go and check uh, over and over again that I didn't leave the stove on or that I locked the door. But a compulsion doesn't only have to be negative. I might be like compelled to pick a baby up because that baby is crying. Or if you know me, I might just be compelled to pick a baby up because the baby's there and I like to pick babies up. You might be compelled to drive into the McDonald's drive-through because you smell those fries. So yummy. I am being compelled to show up at the Saskatoon Inn on January 24th because of a jury summons. To be compelled is to experience a force apart from us that controls or directs our actions. And so in other uh, versions of the same passage, the word used is constraints. So compels is the force behind an action, and constraint uh, brings to mind the boundaries that direct this force or direct this energy. In order to go in one direction, we don't go in other directions. Being constrained or having boundaries helps direct energy in the right way. And the Greek word that's used here kind of gives us uh, both ideas, a sense of both of these things, that the love of Christ both compels us, but also constrains us. It energizes us. It's a force that causes us to act, but it also boundaries us. It reveals the ways in which we should and should not act. It gives us energy to do things, 
but it also shows us how to do them in the right way. And what it kept bringing to mind when I was thinking about this was a toothpaste tube. So in order to get the toothpaste out of the tube, you have to apply pressure, right? You have to compel it. You need to press the tube. But you also need constraint in order to get toothpaste on a toothbrush, right? You have to have the tube. You have to keep it in one spot. Take away the compelling force and nothing happens. But take away the constraining force and you might end up with something like this. Does anybody know what that's called? Any kids in the room? No? That's called elephant toothpaste. I'm not entirely sure all the chemicals that are used to make this uh, reaction happen, but it's a little like a giant baking soda and vinegar experiment. You put the right things together in the right way, and this explosion happens. Now, as the mother of four children, three of them boys, one of the first things that I thought was, who is cleaning up that mess? Does that just disappear on its own? Who's responsible for that? Whose house is that? But does anyone feel a little like elephant toothpaste these days? Anyone feel like they're under pressure? I don't know about you, but there have been days in this pandemic when I feel like a chemical reaction waiting to happen. If you put all the right elements together, someone who annoys me, another change in protocols or a change in plans, a few different opinions about what to do, and then maybe just like a positive test. And before I know it, I've exploded. It can be easy in these moments to just let loose, to be overtaken by our own chemical reactions or our own compulsion to protect ourselves, to have our voice heard or to get our own way. And for a moment, it might relieve the tension, but who has to clean up that mess? This passage says that instead of letting the tension of these days overflow and overtake us, we are to be compelled and constrained by love. Christ's love gives us energy to do the right things in the right way. It is the force that energizes and directs our action. The love of Christ is our compelling and constraining force. Love squeezes us in the right direction. It becomes the tension that obliges us to act and to act appropriately. And what indicates lack of health in us or in our community, which shows that we're off track, is not that there's tension. It's not that there's disagreement. It's lack of love. We're off track when we allow the tension around us and between us to compel and direct our action instead of love. And if we want to be agents of reconciliation in the world, if that's our purpose as the church, then the way that we go, out participate, go about participating in that purpose is love. It has to match up with the ends. We can't be agents of God's reconciling love if we are not motivated by and boundaried by love. Our means have to match up with the ends. Love is as love does. So, where are you tempted to explode? 
or when have you exploded? Where is the chemical reaction likely to happen in you? And what ingredients uh, cause you to overflow and maybe make a mess of things? Where are your actions compelled and constrained by something other than love? You can hold a lot of different opinions and still be compelled and constrained by love. But it doesn't matter what opinion you hold if it isn't expressed and engaged with lovingly. If it isn't done humbly, it is, as Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthians, nothing. Without love, you say nothing, you have nothing, you gain nothing. And so our first fundamental is, no matter our opinion, we will be compelled and constrained by love. On to our second fundamental. We will have the same opinion of one another as God has. So, why does Christ's love compel us? Well, listen to this. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. So Paul says here that we no longer regard one another from a worldly point of view. The Greek word here for worldly is sarks. Sounds kind of like a robot word, right? Sarks. Sarks means the physical body in this passage or anything that is uh, conceived of or perceived of in the physical realm. Things that we see with our eyes or hear with our ears. And so Paul says here, we no longer view one another on the basis of our physical body, like our only on the basis of our physical body, like looks, color, ethnicity, gender, but there's also a worldly way of seeing one another that uh, categorizes people based on the things that we perceive with our eyes. We, ways that we like sort one another into us and them. So our political leanings, our vaccination status, whether we are cautious and careful when it comes to the pandemic or where, whether we think masks are ridiculous. Paul says that we no longer see one another in a worldly way, through a worldly point of view. We no longer sort people through these categories. Instead, when we look at one another, we see the self that God died for. We put on different glasses, and it looks a little bit like this. Don't break it. Oh, I can put these on. 
This rocket was supposed to be. It'll like correct, how see it. it'll correct your eyes so that you'll see how it's supposed to see it. It's so clear, I can't believe it. Dad, do you Thank hate you. it? See the balloon color? <laughs> Papa, look at the hat. Oh my god. So this sounds a little garbled there, but this man is colorblind and his kids have bought him glasses that help him see color. And we are a little like people born colorblind who through the work of Christ have a new set of eyes through which we see the world in a whole new way. We don't see people based on their sarks as the world sees them and categorizes them but in their newness, in full color. When we put on our redemption glasses, we see everything differently, including one another. We see people in their belovedness. Greg Boyd says this, all you need to know about other people is Jesus Christ crucified. All you need to do is agree with God about their insurpassable worth and agree with God that they are worth dying for. Paul reminds us in this passage that Christ died for all. All. Christ died for all. Like there's not a person living or dead for whom Christ did not die. Uh, Christ died for you, and Christ died for the person who causes that chemical reaction in you. Christ, in his death, life, and resurrection, has exposed that all of us are enemies of God and all of us are beloved of God. And we all enter this building this morning on the same footing. We can't and have not earned God's love and we have God's love anyway. And this reality changes the whole world. It reveals that in God's economy, all of creation is loved and included in redemption. All of it. When we submit ourselves to this reality, it changes the way that we see everything and everyone. We see reality in a new way, and we see others in a new way. Paul says here, the old is gone, the new is here. And it isn't just a future thing. It has come in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It is a here and now reality. In fact, Paul says in this passage that if we claim that Jesus is more than what he was just in his sarks, the worldly way of seeing him, if we believe that Jesus is God incarnate, if we believe Jesus is more than who we can see just from a human point of view, then we must also see one another from more than just a human point of view. We must see one another in this new way. So who in your life do you need to see through this new set of glasses? 
Where do you need to let go of the worldly way of seeing someone or even something, categorizing things and dismissing things, unable to see the person of insurmountable worth, the precious person for whom Christ died? Are you seeing people in their full color? And if you need a little help, it might be time to consider, to meditate on the fact uh, that you're here, or the reason that you're here, is that in Christ, you were exposed as an enemy of God, and you were also exposed as the beloved of God. Instead of spending time thinking about how you can beef up your own point of view or win an argument, maybe you need to meditate on the fact that you are here, not because you're smarter or made better choices, not because you have less fear, and not because you are more cautious. You are here because of Jesus, just like everybody else. So our first fundamental is love will compel and constrain us. And our second fundamental is that we will have the same opinion of one another as God does. And our final fundamental is that reconciliation will be our goal. Listen again to 2 Corinthians. And this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So our goal in this conversation will not be to convince people of our own ways of thinking. Our goal will not be to convert people. We will let reconciliation and not our own agendas be the goal. We will allow God's goal to be our goal. We will be reconciled to God and to one another in these conversations. The ministry of reconciliation grows out of a new creation, Paul says here. It's a work of the Spirit that comes out of a new world. And so we can't use old ways to make it happen. We can't use modified versions or techniques, uh, modified versions of ourselves to do this new thing. And Paul says in this passage that this new creation will require death. Death to old patterns. Death to old ways of navigating and managing our world. And some of the things that some of us will need to die to will be very precious beliefs. Because sometimes these things become a stand-in for Jesus. They become a stand-in for the new thing. They keep us enmeshed in the old world. The world that Paul says has now died so that the new can come. I have this picture in my mind, like there's been this shift in the tectonic plates, even in our community. A split has happened in the ground. And so we've all retreated from this big fissure. We've gotten as far away from it as we can. Um, and maybe we've built like walls and houses where we've camped out. We might have picked up a few weapons, because who knows what's coming out of that split in the ground. It might be a monster. Anybody see the movie Tremors when they were 18? Like, it might swallow us up, right? 
But what if where that burgeoning is happening, where that lifting is happening, is new life coming? What if we could step out from our corners and meet in the middle, in the territory that might hold some fear for us, and witness the flowering of new life? I wonder, too, if we can rejoice then when we see tension, when we experience differences, because it is an invitation to step into new territory and maybe to witness something we could never have imagined could happen. It's an invitation beyond what we already know into something totally new. See, tension and polarization can reveal the ways that we have yet to allow Jesus to work out reconciliation in our midst, to bring new life and hope, to bring his new thing. Tension has the potential to reveal the things that we need to lay aside in order to step into that place. So what territory are you avoiding in order to stay in your corner? Maybe it's a person or a conversation. Maybe it's just a point of view. And what is it that you need to lay aside in order to step into the territory of reconciliation? See, the space between you and me is the place where God is doing God's work of reconciliation. It might be the place where the tension is, where the fissure is happening, but let's see what God might be up to there. One of the ways that we enter into one another's territory, that we go into this new place, is by sharing the Lord's Supper together. In fact, the Lord's Supper, the location of it, the place where that table is set up, is where the burgeoning is happening, where the fissures happen. The Lord's Supper takes us beyond ourselves and into the arena of community, of new life, where God is still bringing together, just like he was in the Corinthian church, different people with different opinions, different ideas about things, to build a common life together as a witness that God is reconciling all things in Christ. This meal reminds us that we will be compelled and constrained by love, that we are called to see one another in full color. The only opinion we'll have of one another is the opinion that God has, and that we are called to join in the work of reconciliation, to lay aside protections and weapons. And you have to do that, actually, to have communion this way because you need both hands to open these pods. So it's a good metaphor. So we're going to eat together. By now, you probably know that you lift the first layer and the wafer is there, second layer and the juice is there. Um, we're going to eat together, so just wait until I give you instructions to eat. Uh, but let's take communion together. Let's eat together. On the night of his betrayal... Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, for this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take the wafer now and eat with these words. 
This is Christ's body broken for you. In like manner, after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of this, all of you, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for you and for many for the remissions of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together with these words. Christ's blood shed for you. Amen. When you're ready, let's join in response by singing together. Thank you.